Welcome back everyone to the Rogue Retro Smackdown review. This time we're looking at Survivor Series 1999. Uh, a show where for one particular moment and uh, I'm not sure much else as we uh, as we truly dive into the show. I'm Scott McLeod, one of your usual hosts as always. And uh, joining me for the first time since I believe No Mercy 99. He's back for another pay-per-view edition of this virtual journey. It is Carl Pierce. Hello. Yeah, I mean, I enjoyed re-watching No Mercy so much, I just had to come back for more. <laughs> Call me a glutton for punishment. <laughs> <laughs> I know, there's been like a month worth of stuff that's happened since you were last year, but given this is a bloody attitude, you might as well have taken six months, taking a six-month gap between this and No Mercy, because so much has happened. Yeah, that's right. It's like non-stop um, in the Attitude Era, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Survivor Series 19 went down on November 14th, 1999 from the Joe Lewis Arena in Detroit, Michigan in front of an audience of uh, 18,735. And uh, also the main event in the lead-up to this is hyped up as a triple threat match of The Rock versus Austin versus Triple H for the WAF title. And the opening package is all about the main event and shows Vince being involved and him being the uh, special guest referee. I really did not, I don't think it captured the full build to this match because this made it seem like it's all been about Austin and Rock and Triple H all wanting to be the champion and that Vince is just a bystander and he just one weekend and he was going to be the referee. Because in the last two weeks especially, the build has really just been DX are back and DX are feuding with Vince McMahon and The Rock and Austin are just there, Austin less so because he's really in bad shape at this stage, injury-wise. Yeah, um, to be honest, I, I forgot until I started watching it that um, DX reformed just before um, this pay-per-view. And yeah, there's mm-hmm. quite a bit of a strong feud still going on between Triple H and uh, Vince McMahon, which is actually a pretty good feud. Um, I remember quite enjoying it back in the day when I uh, was watching this uh, originally. Mm-hmm. I was doing a recent on the Go Home episode of SmackDown where we were talking about that it seems that like the WF is so strong at this time that they don't really need to do much of a Go Home show to hate their pay-per-view because I think most people have bought what's made of the story. Most people have made the decision to buy the pay-per-view anyway because the Go Home episode is just all about the fact that Arnie was on the show and they just happened to everything and say, Oh yeah, and these two are going to be fighting at Survivor Series, or these people won't be on this team against this team at Survivor Series. So like, it was all about just Arnie and like basically, like, well, you'll, you'll buy the pay per view anyway. Yeah, that was, I, I didn't realise um, this was the one that was a SmackDown that Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, appeared on. Yeah, I didn't know. Was, I knew it was from the wait at Survivor Series. I didn't realise it was the Go Home episode. Is that when he decked Triple H? Yeah, where you gave him the backhand turned around the world. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> uh, I do enjoy Survivor Series, like, as a concept. And but what's weird here is that this is during the period where they would go, they started doing four on four matches. Because I believe up until 97, they did five on five. 98, they didn't do any Survivor Series like matches because of the Deadly Game tournament. And then 99, 2000. They started doing four on four, and then they went back to five on five, and then two thousand and four they started doing four on four again, and then ever since it's been five on five. So, 
Well, that's, the, um, that's in the early 90s. They were doing um, just four on four. In 93, 94, because I remember watching those, they were only four on four. And I think 92, they didn't do one. And I remember occasionally like, they do fucking 10 on 10 with all the tag teams that they had. I think so, like, they claim these are traditional survivors, these matches. But when you change the numbers every other year of how many people can take part in the match, I don't think it's much of a tradition anymore. Yeah, and this year especially, uh, I don't know if you'll agree, Scott, but a lot of the teams, they just don't really make sense, do they? It's a very much a, a mishmash of uh, people sort of stuck together. I know, it does seem like a lot of these matches, like if you play one of the uh, the wrestling games and you click random four times and that's your team on one side and you get <laughs> the two-player controller press random four times against these people. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I'll get into the teams a bit more as we uh, start going through the matches. But yeah, a lot of them just thinking, you know, I just don't understand why these are together. Well, we'll dive into one of those teams right now because uh, we have JR and King welcoming us to the show and we dive into the first of, uh, I believe, four traditional Survivor Series matches where we have uh, your friend and mine, the Godfather, teaming with Dilo Brown and the Headbangers who all come out in pimp gear <laughs> because apparently there's a dress code uh, team up against the Dudley Boys and the Acolytes. Yeah, I mean, when, I, when this was the first match, I thought, it's meant to be, but uh, me and Scott, team Godfather, quiz-winning <laughs> extraordinaires, are back together for <laughs> team Godfather. I mean, it just makes sense. Absolutely. I mean, Godfather is the clear leader of the team because he comes in and then a new Dilo, he and Dilo became a team for a while and I think Dilo dressed up as the Godfather because really had nothing else for Dilo to do. So Dilo comes out, just, it's just a continuous loop of the Godfather. Dilo comes out and then the headbangers come out with giant afros on, and which is just, I did not expect that happened. Godfather's just rolling around the floor laughing at these guys all being dressed as pimps. And then you got the Acolytes and the Dudleys, who, weirdly, when we did the first pay-per-view for this retro journey, which was Unforgiven, uh, these two teams were fusing, and now suddenly they're, they're a team, and that was that was really weird to me, but I think we'll get into how well that team worked in later on in this match. But Yeah, I'm not too sure they liked each other in real life, I've had to be honest, from, from what I've heard. I don't think JBL really likes much of anybody. That's, than other than Ron <laughs> that's, that's a fair point, actually. I mean, we have been doing some decent stuff, Acolytes and the Dudleys, obviously, individually, because the Acolytes are starting to slowly turn into the APA, because they've been getting in bar fights every other week, and the Dudleys have started to be the proper heels that you expect them. Maybe they still have that stutter uh, gimmick, because uh, at the start, probably says the... Uh, is the Godfather, you can have any hose, but he, he stutters on the hat of the hose, and Godfather takes the piss and goes, no, because they can find a people with speech impediments. That's the babyface way in 1999. It clearly is, it clearly is. I mean, a lot of the babyfaces were just sort of viciously taking the piss out of other people, but they were getting over nonetheless. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have two referees. Uh, during these matches, one on the outside to ensure that once the person's eliminated, that they leave the, the ringside area and uh, go to the back. 
we have uh, the Dudleys and the Headbangers mainly starting off uh, the early portion of this match. The Headbangers lose their wigs very, very quickly. The Daryl always seems to think that that was their natural hair. And very early, Thrasher gets eliminated with the clothesline from hair. And then not too long after that, Mosh is gone with the 3D. And I'm not, I've never been a fan of the Headbangers, so I wasn't really disappointed to see them go out so early. Yeah, they, they were they were a decent act in 1997 when um, that sort of music they were sort of representing as a gimmick was in vogue. But yeah, it, they sort of died to death quite quickly, really. To be honest, by about 98, they were, <laughs> they were quite irrelevant. Yeah, I don't think they were much. They're very much long for uh, for the WWF as a team. I don't think for much longer. Uh, the Dudleys and the Athletes, the way they're just dominating this match, it looks like if they stayed on the same page, they could just pitch a shot out and just, they could just eliminate the other team like, so easily. But then Bradshaw gets so angry at D'Lo, he goes and grabs a chair and gets himself disqualified. And then Farouk and Devon keep trying to go in and want to be the one they pin and take advantage of the injured D'Lo. And then they end up brawling and fighting to the back. And they just... Like they get basically counted out, even though neither of them are technically legal. So now it goes down to the Dudleys and the athletes having the advantage to just being Godfather and Dilo Brown two on one against Bobby Ray Dudley. Yeah, I've never understood that when like two two sort of illegal men manage to get counted out, especially when they're both on the same team as well. But mm. there you go. That's. That's the way of things in uh, 1999, WWF. And um, I think Godfather and D-Lo, they both sort of double-team and pin Bubba Ray, and they end up being the survivors, don't they? Yeah, because we have uh, mostly, mostly Bubba Ray and uh, D-Lo, for the most part, because uh, he kicks it sky high. Bubba uh, hits a really... Devastating looking like top rope power bomb. Godfather, despite clearly being a captain of this team, spends the majority of the time on the apron, and it's probably for the best because, as much as we love the Godfather, he's not been he's not the best wrestler. He comes in, he gets a hot tag, hits the whole train, immediately tags back out to Dilo, who then hits the, the lowdown, and then they get the win. I think it was the right decision to have like, a character as over the Godfather and his team getting the big baby face win. Uh, nine minutes thirty six this win and despite being the open the match it was like they just seemed so desperate to just get everybody out of there as quickly as possible because you had fucking the heel team basically eliminating themselves for the most part. Yeah, I mean I I don't think the match needed when you consider the competitors, I don't think the match needed to be much longer than, than it was in all fairness. And you've got to remember as well, unlike these days, this pay-per-view came in well short of three hours actually didn't it so um everything was sort of paced quite quickly yeah it was somewhere around the two like just before the two and a half hour mark if, if even that so yeah it was not the longest period it wasn't like three hours and given that this is one of the big four technically a big five if you count king of the ring then it's surprising that they like didn't extend it to around about three hours because i think you can expect your bigger favorites, the of like uh, this or Radiant Bean or someone like that, may go a bit longer. Yeah, no, I mean, they, I don't know if they really had the, the the sort of talent available to 
put on longer matches and make things uh, sort of stretch things out back in, back then. I, I yeah. miss these. I miss these shorter pay per views. We've had them a bit now in this sort of lockdown era because of lack of crowds and that. But yeah, I, I, I don't really miss the four hour, five hour pay per views. To be fair, so Godfather and Dealer Burns, Soul Survivors. We get another vignette of uh, Kurt Angle, pretty much the same one we've really been seeing for the last couple of weeks. It's we're using footage and taping up him uh, talking about how great he is and all these accomplishments he takes on Sean Stasiak who is it just shows how much they care around these days oh look he's, he's a second generation guy look how good his dad Stan Stasiak was he invented the heart punch and he was the WF champion for a while and uh, let's see how much this guy sucks compared to his dad <laughs> <laughs> he's the, uh, the opponent the first opponent for Kurt Angle, who's announced as the only Olympic gold medalist in WAF history and the most celebrated real athlete in the WAF. And weirdly, this was actually a dark match on King of the Ring 99. I believe we discussed this on a previous quiz. However, on that occasion, Stasiak actually beat Kurt Angle. <laughs> Which is just... well, what, do you, what do you think of the, uh, the packaging of Kurt Angle back here? Uh, I like that. I like the way they're just they hyped him as this arrogant uh, athlete, and I think they did they did it well because they made it seem like they were hyping him as this too good baby face, and then quickly turned him into this like know all arrogant heel very quickly. And I think it was pretty good because like the way they're hyping him up is the way they it was like the early night they type the next incoming baby face, but then. I remember Kurt saying like he thought when he came in he had to be a face because no one would boo an Olympic gold medalist and basically it was Vince and that giving him advice basically saying like, well, like when he goes to the outside to cut his wee promo it was Vince telling him what to say and Angle's like no this, this stuff won't work they won't boo an Olympic gold medalist does his bit and they immediately start booing him so I think it just took a wee while but Angle started to it takes a couple weeks for Angle to probably get comfortable being a heel yeah he's um, I mean when, when they started the Bills and the, the Gents, um, originally, when I was watching it in 99, I, I didn't quite click straight away what they were going for. But, yeah, as soon as he sort of started wrestling and came out, because this is his, basically his debut TV performance, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I kind of got it straight away. He's like this, let's say, super arrogant Guy, he thinks he's a he thinks he's a baby face hero, but he couldn't be more heel if he tried. And yeah, he really sort of fell into the role. And he's had spells as a baby face, but he's always he's always had much longer spells as a heel. He does mm. seem to he does seem to fit more comfortably into the heel role. Yeah, definitely. Especially when he was even when he is a face, he's never the most typical face. He's still, he still he maintains that sort of intensity. That he has in his, his wrestling style, and I like the the most celebrated real athlete. Where basically he's been saying like, "I'm a proper wrestler. I've got my medals," and like making him think how much better he is than everybody else. And when he comes out, the commentators, it's very interesting that Jr. always loves to hype up people like amateur or if they've got a real sporting background, he'll he won't shut up about it. And he's talking about Angle's accomplishment, whereas Lawler's saying like he's not going to win many friends with that real athlete tag and. 
oh no, he's good at the actual <laughs> wrestling, but like he's not used to the sports entertainment WWF style. But then the crowd immediately turn on the match. It's because it's nothing really wrong with it. It's a solid match, but they feel like this too good, like too good babyface angles being shoved in their face. So they immediately start chatting boring and start chatting the name of their local team. And then Angle goes out and says, you do not boo an Olympic gold medalist. Great, until they start booing. And then immediately the commentators change where uh, Lawler's actually defending Angle. Yeah, they should. These people are disrespectful. They shouldn't boo an Olympic gold medalist. And GR's like, well, I don't think you should talk to the family like that. They pay their good money. They can do what they want. Yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, straight away he's showing that he's got character and decent mic work with the way he just so comfortably picked up the mic and was like, yeah, you do not boo an Olympic hero. And apparently that's why Stage Jack was chosen as his um, opponent and that sort of whole match was designed to elicit this exact reaction. So it was kind of boring by design, the match. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Stage Jack, he seems solid in this match, but there's definitely not much to him and you couldn't have Angle go in there with somebody more who you knew would be more over than him because you want the crowd to basically hate the match and by proxy hate the guys involved. And That's it. And there's not really much to say about the match. As I said, they're both technically solid. Angle quickly wrestles Dejak for the most part and uh, avoids a crossbody, hits the Olympic slam. Like, what is they call it now? Because it would later be called the Angle slam. It's weird because yeah. I think it's actually, it's actually a long time before he properly starts using the ankle lock. I still say the ankle lock was an angle more than the angle slam. So just to see him hit the angle slam, which would usually be a setup for the, the ankle lock, but just you hit that and then win. I think it's actually a good year. He, he's winning with that before he actually starts using the ankle lock as a submission because Ken Shamrock's not long out of the company. I think people still think of the ankle lock at this time as a Ken Shamrock move. Yeah, I can't remember exactly when he started using the ankle lock, but it, it suited him so well. That, that move, it, it was a brilliant uh, decision to go with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you hear the story? Because I remember when Nathan does his podcast, he said the year is, and we were talking about 96, and we felt like we should talk about Kurt Angle because that was the year he won the medal, and how WF wanted him in 96. But Angle said that basically he, couldn't, he could never lose if he came in, and that's kind of where the deal fell apart. And it's quite funny that he was losing in dark, matches to, to Sean Stage that when he came in two years later and apparently at a SmackDown taping he wrestled a dark match against Stevie Richards and lost that as well. Yeah, he just he didn't grasp the the business of pro wrestling, did he at, at first? And also another thing that put him off was he, he was invited to an ECW show when they decided to do some sort of crucifixion angle involving the Sandman and <laughs> that uh, that completely turned his nose up uh, at pro wrestling for a good while as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think when he finally got into it, he started training, he apparently took on to get. He apparently took it so quickly, like quicker than they've ever seen. And he actually said when he took his first bump, he wanted to roll the ring. Call he didn't say I can't do this because like for all his amateur wrestling, as soon as he took his first bump, you like you like oh god. <laughs> That was like me when I started doing um, jiu-jitsu because it's like basically all froze and I got paired with the biggest guy in the sort of skill when I started and yeah, I got I got thrown basically taking my first bump and <laughs> I was like, Jesus Christ, I can't do this. 
<laughs> but yeah, you stick with it and you get used to it in the end, bizarrely. Yeah. Uh, we get a little clip from uh, Sunday Night Heat where basically Triple H called it the Rock and Austin. This is a really an excuse for DS to come out and try and get the jump on them before the, the triple threat later on. Not really much to say about that. Now, Carl, I know you have been like watching the last few weeks of uh, SmackDown, and so I'm trying to give as much detail as I can in terms of Bill and how we got his certain things. This match, I can't help you with that because this is as thrown together as it looks because we have the European champion, the British Bulldog, teaming with his lackeys and Mean Street Posse to take on the team of Val Venus, Mark Henry, Gangrel, and Steve Blackman. I mean, even back in the day when I was watching this when it was originally broadcast, I still didn't quite understand why the Bulldog was with the Mean Street Posse. <laughs> it makes even less sense now. I mean, it just... Why? I mean, what? The Mean Street Posse are Shane's friends. I mean, what? what's their connection with the British Bulldog? And as you say, yeah, Val Venus and Mark Henry I can get because of the, you know, the, the whole sex sort of connection. But Gangrel <laughs> and Blackman? Ain't just bizarre. The, uh, the Posse connection is quite simple. They're good at, they're good at taking bumps and Bulldog is too knackered to take any bumps. So the Intrude Foster there basically to take his bumps for him. Pretty and much. We were talking about how at No Mercy Test V Bulldog should have been on the pay-per-view. Well, the night after No Mercy, we finally got Test V Bulldog. And they had a couple of weeks feud on, on Raw. And the Mean Street Posse still had an issue with Test. So they helped Bulldog and then now they're just a team. And they helped them beat Dale Brown on episode of SmackDown. Pardon me. They helped him beat Dilo for the European title, uh, and now he's a European champion. He got a title shot, not the title he wanted, but he's finally got a title, so he can shut up about it. Because <laughs> like, Val Venus continued his feud with Mankind after no, after no Mercy, even up to the Raw before this, and then on SmackDown, there was no mention of him and Nick Foley, and they said, oh, Val will team with Blackman, Henry, and, and uh, Gangrel, and like, since when? When was this a thing? I don't even... <laughs> Just what like, baby faces are available. <laughs> that wasn't even a baby face up until this. You just suddenly turned baby face <laughs> right before on the SmackDown. It's just because like, you've got Bulldog and his three late lackeys, so like, we need a four-man team to go up against some Survivor Series. And you're so desperate because, like, yeah, you got a sex match with Val and Mark Henry. I mean, Gangrel, technically, in hindsight, Given he directs porn now, but like Steve Blackman, <laughs> does he? Yeah, does. right. So that, that that does make a bit bit of sense in that sort of hindsight, then. Yeah. Whereas Steve Blackman is the most asexual human being I've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, if you wanted to, if you wanted to take him out and put uh, Godfather in his place, there's a common theme amongst your, yeah. your four guys. But. Uh, <laughs> Can't even imagine Blackman watching Paul, let alone starring in it, can you? <laughs> um, Young Grill, I don't think he's done anything since the night after No Mercy, where the Hardy's Edge Christian beat him down. And Blackman, I last remember him having a match against Val Venus, in fact, at Unforgiven, I think it was. And I don't think he's really done much since. So, yeah, so definitely they've got the momentum coming into this match. Uh, and weirdly, Bulldog comes in. 
and he almost immediately tags out. And then Val taunts him with doing these weird like poses to get the bulldog to come back in. Bulldog suplexes Val and then tags back out. Like, bulldog wants to do as minimal work in this match as possible. And so, as I was say, I don't think Bulldog lasts too much longer after this um, pay per view, does he? I don't remember him being around much in uh, two thousand anyway, because that's his why he's not doing a lot because. Basically, he can't, as you said before, he, he can't bump his back still knackered after landing on that trap door in um, WCW. So he's he's barely mobile at this point. I think he'll he'll be around up until the Rumble. I think the Rumble might be his last appearance, if not like one of the weeks after that. But yeah, like Rumble next two thousand will be like one of the last things we see Bulldogs will be. We've only got him for a couple of more months because I do I do think he defends the European title at uh, Armageddon so we have the bit of the story here is uh, Mean Street Posse being the jobbers that they are all get eliminated fairly quickly Boots on Blackman takes out Pete Gass Rodney try, Rodney ironically tries a crucifix pin on the vampire but it doesn't work and then uh, there's a bit of a miscommunication which leads to uh, Impaler DT from Gangrel Rodney's out and then Joey Az is shortly eliminated by a splash from Mark Henry so Bulldog is facing a four-on-one advantage. And I don't know why, but I somehow thought that this meant this was going to be like a, a shutout for the face team, if you can call them that. But no, uh, Gangrel and Blackman get eliminated quite quickly for, by the Bulldog. Who, but he can't overcome Henry and Val Venus, who with a series of splashes, including the money shot off the top. Splash, uh, get rid of the Bulldog. And Mark Henry and Val Venus, the... Uh, Sets connection as you called them, or the <laughs> backwards in nine minutes and eight seconds. Yeah, again, another under 10 minute um, Survivor Series elimination match. And, yeah, I'd like to say it was enjoyable, but it, it wasn't really. Um, as you say, Bulldog, when Bulldog was left on his own, yeah, you'd think he'd be dispatched quite quickly, but uh, now he. I suppose because he's a European champion and perhaps they still saw him as some sort of star. They they gave him a couple of um, eliminations. I did think his fisherman suplex on Blackman was uh, poorly executed. It just goes to show how weak the posse are. That was even much of a boot from Blackman when he eliminated Pete Gas. Like he just did like a, a shitty looking version of a bro kick and caught him in the stomach, and that was enough to get rid of him. And then Blackman's quickly eliminated by Bulldog later on. And I know I kind of sped through the description of the match, but like I said, it's nine minutes long, and it went by so quickly that the only spots I could, not, I could really note down were basically the, all the eliminations. Yeah, same here. That, that's all I basically got down. Not, not all, the, the eliminations were so thick and fast, there's, there's not a lot else to, to talk about, really, is there? And talking about people not being around much longer was... Was the Mean Street Posse? I don't think they had much more to do, did they really, in 2000? I think they were quickly sort of... Weirdly enough, I think they'll be around until up until maybe Mania, because weirdly in the month leading up to Mania, they gain a new like life, because uh, the 24-7 rule in the up to Mania is introduced. And them, it, along yeah. with, them along with other like low-card acts, like the Headbangers are basically popping up every now and then chasing after the hardcore title. So that gave them something to do, but even then they weren't allowed very much longer. So 
they managed to get a couple of memorable segments crammed in before they were eventually gone. Exactly. Imagine re um, reissuing a, a title twenty one years later. <laughs> so the most attitude error match almost uh, quickly ends with like you got gimmicks like the like, vampire, the sex addict, and shit like that. <laughs> and we move on to a very awkward thing with Michael Cole going into the women's locker room. Where the, yeah, uh, the- what was this about? I just put, I just put a big letter on my notes. Michael Cole is a perv. Yeah, it's perfectly normal for me to walk into the women's locker room and then he's shocked when they're in various states of undress. But what, what's he expecting? I mean, they weren't even that much undressed. Like, because like Ivy's in her gear, Luna thinks in her gear, like Jacqueline's fine, and then Terry's the most like undressed. But even she's covered up as soon as Michael comes in. And then Ivory's the one, Ivory's the one who's like all anti, like the whole sexualization of the women in the roster. It's the one putting our hands all over Michael Cole and having him rub stuff on her stomach. Like, and Michael Cole's like so awkwardly trying to get out of the locker room as soon as he went in. Like, what the hell did you go in for, Michael? <laughs> it's just a perver. He's been outed. He should be. He should be sat. I mean, this needs to be brought up, and he, he should be sat or suspended. It's disgusting. <laughs> uh, and that takes us into not a Survivor Series match, even though you've got the same amount of competitors for it, because they thought, "Geez, we can't have a women's match go nearly nine minutes." So we're having a eight women Southern Death match. So it's basically an eight woman tag, one forty a finish, where we have Miller, Me Young, Tori. And Deborah, Deborah, who by the way gets the biggest fucking pop of anybody in this she match. She does, doesn't she? It's an amazing pop. And she's coming out of Jeff Jarrett's music. Like you hear the first notes of that country music, and then the fucking pop. You think Austin or The Rock was coming out <laughs> of that pop? Taking on the team of Terry Reynolds, who gets the second biggest pop. Luna Vachon, Ivory, and Jacqueline, and. Oh my god, this fucking match! <laughs> Luckily, it, it's uh, it's relatively quick, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, God, why they thought it was a good idea to have was it seventy-year-old women wrestle? Uh, like, wait, we have had a bad string of women's matches uh, so far in the Victoria. And like, I'm not trying to shit on like just because it's the women, but like, it's what they've been given because like. You had the god-awful underwater... Well, imagine it felt like it was being wrestled underwater back at No Mercy. Me and Liam talked about... Or me and Reese talked about a, a really crap women's title match that went all of a few minutes between Tory and Ivory on the go-home smackdown that was just awful because he had all these women coming out and getting involved. And then this happens. But nobody cares about who's legal. Miller made you jump Ivory as, before she even gets in the ring. Like Jacqueline being one, of, despite being one of the more confident members of this match, has one of the weirdest botches I've ever seen. Because like, I think her and Luna made double suplex, a Tory or something like that, and then it was like Luna just stands there while Jacqueline delivers an awkward DT. I think their time was off, and then they put Tory back up, and then they hit the double suplex. Like it was just gear in the headlights level stuff. It's it's not good. It's um, uh, Sasha and Asuka, these ladies are not. I mean, the oh. golf 
I mean, the golf is <laughs> its just incredible, to be honest. Yeah, and what's weird is the crowd at the start are chatting for probably because uh, Deborah's there. And then, despite the fact that this match goes a minute and a half, like a minute, sorry, a minute 50 here, I've got no doubt, the, the crowd go from cheering for because of puppies and shit like that to then being dead in like a, a, just a matter of seconds. A, there's a weird double pin by Miller and May on Ivory, the face team won, and then randomly after the match, Tori, or Terry and uh, Deborah get into a bit of a fight where Tor- Terry's top gets ripped open and fucking the crowd pop out, come, suddenly come alive after being dead the entirety of that match. <laughs> I wonder, wonder why. I wonder why, yeah. I mean, it's almost a shame that Tori is a face because you should have swapped her around maybe with Terry uh, in these teams where you would have had the old woman and the women who are just used because of their appearance against the team that can wrestle. Because that's basically how it sh- should have been. Like I said, one minute 50, Miller leaves with the women's title. Please to God, don't tell me this leads to another women's title match with, with her and Ivory. <laughs> I can't handle it, I can't. Uh, I, I think it, I think I remember um, a one-hour Iron Woman match between them. If, if I... <laughs> yes, famously voted uh, best sports match of the year in the Wrestling Observer of May nine. That was it. Seven stars in the Tokyo Dome. I think it was. <laughs> oh, but we have uh, a light at the end of the tunnel because Kane's coming up next. So that'll I should help with my spirits. Yeah, um, Kane and X Pat. Um, two decent workers you can't go too far wrong with these guys to be honest yeah unfortunately Xbox couldn't be here with us this evening because uh, he looks stoned out of his nut backstage <laughs> <laughs> like he's just he's, he's stumbling over his words trying to figure out what, how he really is like he calls him a retard talks shit about Tory and then we get uh, as bad as Tory was in this match and even though it technically was, it wasn't her fault when it shows her promo on Kane's behalf from Heat about Xbox, she she does a pretty good job as like kind of the mouthpiece for Kane. I thought. Yeah, I mean, I still don't think she's great, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, terrible, I suppose. I mean, there was a low bar at this time for uh, the promos that the women were allowed to cut, and I think Tori is well above that bar. Uh, obviously last time you were on the retro review we were talking about No Mercy where we had that four corners match that Xbox won and seemingly a few weeks later Xbox suddenly got two big for his britches reunited with his old pals and suddenly was too good to be hanging around with Kane and uh, turned his back on Kane and uh, in my opinion that is where the term Xbox keep truly originates from when he betrayed Kane and claimed that he's been carrying Kane despite the fact that Kane was the one having to rescue him all the time, and uh, now we have this match. It's rare that you have a, a smaller heel and like the like six foot, nearly seven foot, three hundred pound baby face. That's not that's never usually the dynamic, but people want to see Xbox get his arse kicked. Yeah, it, it is a it's a strange dynamic when the, the heels, when, yeah, when the face is much bigger than the heel, and it. Doesn't always work. I sort of think back to WrestleMania with Alexa Bliss and, and Nia Jax. That that, that never that heel face dynamic never really worked either. It usually is better when the uh, 
the face is a smaller guy and he's overcoming the odds and I don't think I'll say about X Park. He's he's the sort of advertisement for why you need you, you need scripted promos because <laughs> God's sake, when he's given a mic with no script, he, he I don't know, he just he talks all sorts of shit basically, doesn't he? It's yeah. incredible. Hmm. Yeah. X Park tries to get the jump on game uh before the match. Uh he's throwing punches that don't really have much effect. Uh, Kane does go to the top for his like, top clothing, but gets dropped by X-Pac and tumbles to the outside. X-Pac, while they're on the outside, seemingly gets the advantage, roll back in, and he goes for a Bronco buster, but Kane gets out of it. Uh, tilt well back, bigger by Kane, chokes slam. Then the road dog gets involved, and Spike clearly grabbing Kane's leg and pulling him out. Uh, there's no D- The bell isn't rugged, there's no DQ. So Kane attacks road dog, goes back in the ring, gets it with an X-Factor, but Kane... Uh, just throws X-Pac off when he kicks it, just a normal guy, just throws him across the ring, uh, goes for a tombstone, but Triple H comes in and hits Kane with a title belt, and uh, the match ends in a DQ, so Kane wins by DQ in 4 minutes and 15 seconds. A, a weirdly short match, they're not giving you like the payoff of Kane beating up X-Pac, but uh, so they're continuing this story. I believe they have a match at Armageddon, which is far better than this. Yeah, it's um, it's almost as if they're doing sort of TV times matches here because everything's so far has been relatively short, hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Nothing's gone over nothing's gone over ten minutes as of yet. Yeah, so little like like the matches are so short, but there's so much is happening because like a lot happens between Kane and Xbox. Cause you had Xbox trying to like get any advantage you could over the bigger Kane, but then every now and then Kane would gain advantage and be sort of thrown around Xbox and then DX are beating down Kane and then Tori comes out to try and save Kane and Xbox just spin kicks her right in the face. Yeah, that was a, an interesting bit of an angle they were they were doing. I can't remember where it all goes now, but yeah. I forgot about that. It's quite surprised me. Yeah, no, it was it was weird, especially given that this was almost like it wasn't much time since people had seen Tori come out earlier for that women's match and then she's back again and get kicked in the face and what I liked was Kane was being beat in the corner as soon as he seen Tori get hit he was immediately back up and DX all shattered and ran up the ramp and also Kane looked concerned for Tori and it was a good bad character work from Kane Yeah definitely it was um, I quite enjoyed the stuff when he was with uh, Tori and she was like quietly sort of manipulating him to, uh, and sort of beating people up and stuff for her, wouldn't she, as uh, the television went on. You'd be like, oh, he just said something about me, and then that would sanction the match between Kane and somebody who Kane would obliterate. Yeah. Triple H, this might be in that segment, he's quickly backstage to interrupt the Rocks promo, and uh, that leads to a bit of a brawl like again, just try and keep you the main event in people's minds because like DX and Triple H especially are just all over the shop during this show and as they have been and lead up to this on TV. Uh, yeah, I mean, would you say this is basically a one-match pay-per-view because everything seems to be revolving around the, the Triple Threat main event and the undercards almost sort of irrelevant because it is basically so far it does feel basically filler doesn't it I think it's been built around the main event like promotional wise 
And I think they, they're having these Sony Series matches because they know they need to have at least a couple. But I think they're, we're going to get to one or two underground matches that I think were actually pretty good. And is it weird that this match coming up, despite being easily the shortest Survivor Series match on the show, is actually my favourite one? Uh, this is the big show minus any team taking on the big boss man, Midian, Albert and Vister. Yeah, didn't he take his team out in on heat or something? Wasn't he meant to be with was it Kyantai and somebody? Kyantai and uh, the Blue Mini. Because like uh, apparently he wanted to get his hands on both man, they said then he gets a virus match and uh, obviously Albert has been uh, almost a protege of both Midian and Vister aren't doing anything so they threw them in and basically basically said I don't want any partners but he was just assigned uh, a team so we beat that team up on heat and just you got blue me they're like mate we're on your side we're on your side it's basically just like, I don't want any partners and just throwing about poor Taka and Funaki all over the locker room and uh, we talked about the big Arnie episode on the go home smackdown this is also the site of the infamous uh Dragging away the coffin spot. Uh, oh, me God, yeah. <laughs> and they claim that eventually Big Show got his father back and was really give him a proper burial. Like, well, where the hell... I want to know where did Bossman exactly take the coffin and how are they so sure that within the span of three days from SmackDown to now, did they get the coffin back? It's crazy. I mean, big show clinging onto the the casket as Bossman's dragging it. I mean, it's one of those visuals that will stay with me till the end of time. Unfortunately, he's big Homer Simpson. No, he's dragged onto the coffin. I mean, we think WWE does some questionable stuff these days, but Jesus Christ! So it seems like Big Show's like. Oh, how's Bigelow gonna fare when he's it's four on one? But like, forgetting he's like five hundred pounds, he's still as and he's like seven feet tall. So like, he's pretty much a one man team. He comes out, clears the ring, instantly eliminates both Albert and then Midian with choke slam. He body slams Vista, which gets a pop from the crowd because obviously body slam on the size of Vista, even by the big show is quite impressive. And then choke slam Vista. He's not really to quite get him up, but it's still enough to eliminate him. And then uh, the boss man decides, nah, and gets himself carried out. So the big show wins and then chases after the boss man. Are you aware that at 1 minute 26, this match goes, this is the shortest Survivor Series elimination match in history? Um, Thank goodness for small mercies, I say. I mean, who really needs to see um, Viscera and... Midian actually wrestle him. So, yeah. Um, Big Show taking them out in short order. <laughs> it's just mm. the tonic, really. And Albert's not exactly um, the greatest worker of all time. <clears throat> I think part of the chokeslam is um, assisted by the person taking it, isn't it? Trying to lifting themselves up and Viscera obviously <laughs> hasn't got the uh, physicality to give himself much elevation, so he couldn't really help Big Show much on on that. Yeah, I mean, the height he gets for like for like Midian and Albert is quite impressive. Mm. But I'm not quite able to get 
a thrill that high. And I think a big complaint over this angle is it's made Big Show look kind of weak. He's not really much of a killer as he should be. I think that here he managed to regain some of that intensity, obviously fueled by hatred of the boss man and what he's done to him the last few weeks. And he yeah. just ran through this team in order to get a boss man. But still, like I said, much like KNX, but they're making you wait for him to eventually get his hands on on Bossman. I think this feud will finally come to a head at Armageddon. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's another big reason why Big Show was made to look so dominant in this match as well, which we will get to in due course. Well, I think this is a good thing to go backstage where Austin has an interview and uh, he's interrupted by Triple H. So Austin chases after Triple H and you kind of see uh, DX running towards the kind of parking lot area. Austin goes out to the parking lot. He's yelling after Triple H. You can't see him. And then we see these headlights flash. And you know what happens next. The car runs through the gate and runs over Austin for speeding away. And also the infamous call to you. Like, God, that car just ran over Austin. And Austin has run over. He's been taken out of the main event. And, and we actually won't see Austin again until the spring of 2000. This is how they write Austin off TV because he's in desperate need of neck surgery because like, he's been de- his neck issues have just been getting worse ever since, obviously, 97, when he had his neck broken by one heart. And like he's got a number of other injuries that he just needs to take time off. But it doesn't stop them from uh, promoting Austin right up until the show. Yeah, it's one of the worst bait and twist bait and twists they've ever done, really. I mean, they knew well in advance Austin was in no shape to compete in this match, but they were worried about numbers as per normal, so they went ahead and promoted it anyway. And uh, as you say, yeah, they came up with this storyline, which <laughs> had a pretty uh, anticlimactic payoff. Because um, I mean, it didn't, wasn't paid off until almost a year later, really, was it? Well, yeah, they also they couldn't pay it off until they brought Austin back. Mm. The whole structure that would be Austin obviously coming back. They have the confrontation between the person himself and the person that took him out. And I don't think I, I very much doubt they knew who they were going to reveal as the attacker when they did the angle here, because the person who is later revealed to be the the person who ran over. Actually, hasn't even debuted yet on TV. I don't think they'll actually debut until a few weeks later. Oh, has he not? <laughs> but yeah, it, was all, it was all done for the rock. Yeah, I don't think. I think his first pay per view match. I know I keep mentioning Armageddon, but I think this person's first pay per view match will come uh, next month at Armageddon. So uh, do with that information what you will. I mean, we've kind of danced around this. And the weeks leading up to like making jokes like, oh, yes, that trouble third match that we all know and we all love. Because I don't want to spill it and say, oh, yeah, we all know that Austin gets taken out. But like, it is kind of shitty that they didn't take him out beforehand. Because me and Reach were discussing this, like, do you think it would have been better if they did the, this angle on SmackDown, on like the Go Home Madden, and then you can maybe bump up maybe some last minute buys for the MP of. Well, what's going to happen at Survivor Series? Is it going to be a one-on-one match? Is Austin going to get replaced at Survivor Series? I mean, they could have done like um, a mystery third participant, I suppose. That might have given enough intrigue. I mean, the rap was super over here, so I'm, I'm sure buy rates wouldn't have been hurt that much um, mm. if they'd have been honest and taken, taken Austin out earlier. 
But then again, you've got to do something, bring in someone reasonably decent if you're going to have a mystery um, participant. Not, I'm not sure the big show would have quite cut the mustard. Yeah, I think they were concerned, obviously, knowing how big of a star Austin is. I don't, I don't think they wanted to take the risk of any uh, any bags going down. So I think mm. that's why they let it right up until the actual show itself. And it obviously is a very well-known like moment. I think it's the moment the show is probably most known for, with uh, the close second obviously being the debut of Kurt Angle. And it's at this point where the show, the show kind of slows right down to the, the, the crank of an air of seriousness. It's like you have JR going backstage to uh, uh, to check on them getting loaded into the ambulance, leaves the show to go and go to the hospital we we all and uh, we have Daryl all having to cover and kind of scrambling on his own on commentary to try and cover and like make up time because then he says like well we'll get some update shortly and then just the camera just stays awkwardly on Jerry Lawler who's just looking up at the screen not knowing what else to say. Yeah, it was a bit was a bit strange and awkward until JR came back. And then most of the commentary after that was just Lawler sort of ribbing and hounding JR for being a poor friend for, for not going to, to the hospital with uh, Austin. Yeah, because well, uh, what happens earlier on is like JR both come back to commentary at the start of this next match, but like JR just openly says, in the next couple of matches, like, oh yeah, I'm not really into this match as much as I should be because I'm concerned about about Austin. And uh, by the second match, uh, not this match that's coming up, but the match after it, by then, even though we've just seen it happen less than an hour ago, Joe Law is saying DR, we, we shouldn't live in the past, like, you got to move on. Yeah, Austin got run over, move on. And then, and then in that same match, Complains that JR is not a good enough burn because <laughs> yeah. because JR decided he's going to focus on calling the match and not think about Austin to try and take his mind off the fact that his pal just got run over. And JR all of a sudden, like, well, I'm glad it wasn't me that was run over. This is how you care about your friend. Yeah. <laughs> 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 he really is. I mean, if you'd have mentioned it once or twice, it wouldn't have been too bad, but it's basically his whole commentary for the next. Two matches, and like Jr. and King, I thought we're having a kind of a bit of an off night on this show in the lead up before this happened, and this angle doesn't help the favors because now they're just talking about Austin and not talking really about the matches going forward. Because like before this, they were just arguing, like petty, petty arguing, and Jr. Uh, was coming out with all sorts of nonsense, even for him. So it wasn't a good night for not a banner night for Jr. and King. No, it wasn't really. Um, I know Austin's the uh, the biggest star in the company, but you know you don't don't want to forget about the matches either. Uh huh. So we go on to the Intercontinental Championship match. Chris Jericho taking on China, and it's weird. You think the crowd would kind of die after seeing like Austin like, get run over? As soon as Jericho's music hits. He gets one hell of a pop, like almost a Debra level pop. That's the that's the bar we're aiming at in terms of uh, reactions. Because Jericho, despite being a heel in this period and basically trying to do a double J and basically crap on all women, whenever Jericho's attacked China the last few weeks, he's been the one getting the, the, the babyface reaction because I think the shine is coming off China a little bit because like, they hated Janet 
but Jericho's kind of almost the, the 90s, the equivalent of a net, net darling coming over from WCW where he wasn't appreciated, and now he's in the WWF, and uh, I think people kind of already want to see China lose the Intercontinental title. Yeah, I mean, despite WWE sort of mishandling him, I mean, since his great debut, they're not really doing a huge lot with him. He's still man. He's still massively over, isn't he? I mean, probably because he's such a charismatic guy. Yeah, and and to his credit, he takes some hell of a bump. Like he takes some great bumps to like put over China. Like he gets Irish up in the corner, he does a big flip over the turnbuckle. Uh, he would later complain that China went to like Triple H and Vince and one that Jericho was too stiff with her after saying that she wanted to be treated like an equal and all that. And then she would go and complain about Jericho the way he worked in the ring and that kind of got some heat on Jericho uh, from Triple H and Vince for a while. And uh, Jericho fights with her on the outside. He, he chokes over the slight camera cables. He, throws, he rips apart the barricade and throws her into it. Miss Kitty, at one point, uh, comes in to kind of check on China and the camera zooms right in her arse. And that's all Jericho I can look at. <laughs> <laughs> he was I think he was married to her at this point wasn't he or at least dating I think, her I think they may have started their relationship with him I know they'll be married by like 2001 when they both leave the company but I'm not sure when exactly their relationship actually started uh, I think, yeah I think I think he's sort of responsible for bringing her in and then when she got sacked and he couldn't get her job back uh, he he, sort of, he left in a huff, didn't he? And she left him because he couldn't get a job back on telly. And uh, he eventually came back to WWE with his tail between his legs. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, yeah. Crawling, like Homer Simpson crawling through the supplicant store to get his job <laughs> back. But it's just like, well, well, well. <laughs> so, yeah, as I said, Jericho works over China. King mentions that Jericho apparently claimed he would get a sex change if he lost this match, and then that's all he will talk about during this match. Like whenever it looks like Jericho's going to get pinned, like, oh, we we, we didn't get a tail change, but we almost got a sex change, and oh, Jericho was almost abroad there if he didn't kick out, and Jr. has no time for Jericho all in his shite. Yeah, it's uh, it's very sexist back in um, nineteen ninety nine, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, Jericho struggles but he managed to get China up for a, a powerbomb it's a spot on the outside where he just forces himself on Miss Kitty which is just really quite dated I mean <laughs> we're still seeing that in 20, 2020 when Dustin Woods the Jake Hager's wife but I think the attitude uh, people's reaction now shows how different it is to back then because he got a pop in 99 whereas people on Twitter were like no Dustin shouldn't have been doing that yeah, it's uh, amazing, really, how um, the times have changed when mm-hmm. it comes to sort of spots and angles like that. Uh, Jericho misses a lion soul, although it's not called a lion soul. Uh, I think Jericho just called it his actual name, a uh, springboard. I think he means so. Hey, I'm not sure where exactly it would be called a lion soul. Jenna uh, hits the pedigree, uh, kick out Jericho. Looked in the walls of Jericho, the fans are very much behind him at the start of the match, they were chatting Jericho, and uh, Tana does get the ropes, which does uh, get a mix of booze, and uh, Jericho, I think the people wanted uh, Jericho to win on that occasion, and uh, and uh, 
Joe Lawler says, no, half of them want to see him win JR. Don't be sexist. So I think Joe Lawler's implying <laughs> that all the women in the arena want China to win and all the men want Jericho to win, apparently. And so he sits saying up on the top rope. He goes for some sort of Hurricane Rana and then Miss Kitty distracts the ref as China low blows Jericho and, and hits a, a top rope pedigree to retain in 13 minutes, 34. There you go. The first match that we had that went over 10 minutes. I think every match going forward uh, gets, goes over 10 minutes. So, you know, we're, we were saving for the big matches. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think this was the the best match on the card. It's, it's, not, it's not terrible, but it is a bit sort of boring. And I think these sort of matches sort of show China's limitations. <laughs> and one of the reasons perhaps why she was... Getting booed. She didn't. She still didn't really have much of a personality yet, did she? I don't. Don't really think she developed a, what I'd call a sort of proper personality until the pairing with Eddie Guerrero. To be honest with you. Yeah, I think Jane was only strong as the person she was in the ring with, and like she had a lot of like gimmicks to hide her limitations. Yeah, back at No Mercy, and here Jericho, as strong as a worker he is he still adapts to the style, I think, and he tries his best, but even then, China kind of gets exposed, because, like, the finish even, like, I've never been a fan, like, when Jer- when CM Punk used to do the Pepsi plunge, which was basically the top rope pedigree, I didn't really like it, because it really usually took too long to set up, and it looked too convoluted, but when China does it, like, China is definitely no CM Punk, because, like, she hits it, and then she basically lands on her feet, and then crumbles as she hits the pedigree, and Jericho just flips takes it all in his front and just like it looked horrible and uh, it's just like it's like oh this will be a cool spot and I think they quickly learned yeah let's never do that again yeah I don't think we ever saw that again thankfully but at least China did have a new music this time she wasn't uh, a baby face coming out to Triple H's music yeah it's strange because uh, when DX got back together they just didn't with no explanation they just didn't involve China in the reunion the fact she'd been associated with Triple H only, only a few weeks before and then one week she had like an instrumental version of her of her theme song and then I think on the Go Home Raw she finally got like the version with the lyrics that we, we hear here and I think it kind of suits what she's going for and the idea like the idea of her being able to mix up with the men and as well as the women so fair just to her yeah it's not, a bad, it's not a bad theme song actually it's not not one of the best, but it's certainly not one of the worst. Mm-hmm. Uh, backstage, obviously, everybody's been pointing the finger of blame at Triple H and that. And Triple H is like, oh no, we, we didn't do that. We were just going to lure him out to the parking lot. We didn't want to run over. Like, we don't want to go to jail or anything. That's just, un- that's just unthinkable. We wouldn't do that. Despite the fact they try to kidnap The Rock <laughs> yeah. and, leave, and leave him in an abandoned car only a few weeks ago when the first back then they got back together. But, like, and then Triple H was concerned, like, oh, no, we're, we're very concerned about Austin, like, we didn't do this. And then Triple H goes, uh, so, uh, is, it, is it a one-on-one match now? Is it still a triple threat? <laughs> and then Shane was like, yeah, right here, and uh, Triple H looks over at Tess Winter, but you're, you're a nose big guy, because they bust his nose when they go home to Smackdown. And I don't think everybody, everybody would quite catch this. But I heard uh, Tess basically like, said, well, it's not as bad as yours, Gonzo. And he just, shoots, he just takes the piss out of the side of Triple H's nose. <laughs> yeah. There's uh, always a 
good bit of fun there, poking at uh, Triple H's nose. But yeah, he's <laughs> feigning that he's a concern for Austin, and then he's like, "But it's one on one now, isn't it?" Mm. Uh, at least for the time for the time being, as far as we know. And uh, we're going to our final Survivor Series match, and actually the only Survivor Series match that's had any real build up until this point. We have uh, the Holly hardcore and crash, and two cool Scotty Dehart and Brian Chris. Uh, Grandmaster Sexy speaking on the Hardys and Edge and Christian because uh, like after No Mercy the uh, Hardys and Edge and Christian kind of were all faces and they're like oh we all respect each other now uh, the Hollies shortly after No Mercy won the tag team titles from their rock and thought and actually defended them quite regularly they defended them against both the Hardys and Edge and Christian and it was in a match against Edge and Christian that it looked like Edge and Christian had the tag titles won Christopher and uh, Taylor, as they were then known, came out and cost my titles, and then shortly after would we debut as basically as too cool, or say sorry, too sexy Brian Christopher and Scotty too hot Taylor, as they were known for a week before officially being called Scotty too hot and uh, Grandmaster sexy. And it's weird seeing them as a heel team because like they come into very tepid reactions. Nobody's like chatting along when Scotty does the worm. Or anything like that. It's, it's very weird, and these guys have been going back and forth for the last few weeks, including uh, Grandmaster Six actually beating Jeff Hardy on the Go Home SmackDown. So, uh, yes, it's nice to see how Survivor Series match with an actual story, if you can call that, behind it. Yeah, it's probably the best match on the card as well. Oh, definitely up there as, as one of them. It's the one I most enjoyed. And I can't remember exactly what it was that um, sort of finally got. Too cool, though, you know, really over as baby faces as well, because they were really popular in uh, in the 2000. Uh, yeah, I'm quite interested to see what actually happens because I know that by the Rumble they have that big moment where they're all dancing in, uh, in MSG and everybody's popping, everybody loves them. And see, that's only two months away at this stage, so like, I want to see what exactly is the moment that turns them from like obnoxious, like, heel characters to like, that, like, Arguably one of the most popular like face undercard acts of uh, the actually like the year two thousand, Tuku were very much the opening act that they almost got like some of the biggest reactions of the night. Yeah, and especially when Rikishi started joining them and they do the whole putting on the sunglasses and the little dance routine stuff. Mm-hmm. So whether that started off as a bit of a heel thing to try and get heel heat and it turned them baby face, I'm I'm, I'm not too sure. Yeah, it's almost it was almost an ironic thing that people started loving them, and then they just became baby faces naturally. Because like Gr has no time for too cool, whereas Gr Law is declaring like one of the greatest things ever. Yeah, and, I wonder, uh, wonder why. I wonder <laughs> why he's still denying that Brian Christopher is his son. But we have uh, Matt and Scotty starting off in a decent sequence. Uh, there's a moment where basically everybody starts doing their dives to the outside, like there's a sunset flip bomb by uh, Brian Christopher. And uh, the sequence ends with uh, Jeff Hardy and Harper Holly falling uh, in the ring, and Harper just backdrops Jeff, and he flies over the top on everybody on the outside. Uh, Edge starts hitting a series of like, speed on everybody, but then there's a bit of a miscommunication where he's kind of hit, but head with one of the heart, and he gets rolled up, and weirdly, in hindsight especially, out of everybody in this match, Edge is the first one eliminated. And arguably, he has the best single career of anybody in this match. 
Yeah, it was strange. I mean, I, I would say he was still felt like the biggest star uh, in the out of all the uh, eight men, and yeah, it was quite surprising to see him go first, actually. Mm-hmm. But and one then, thing I think does help this match is everyone can work. Even even Hardcore Holly's a, a half <laughs> decent worker. I mean, he's a he's bloody Kelly Omega when you compare him to the likes of uh, Viscera and Midian. <laughs> uh, and then quickly after that, there's a diving DDT from Scotty to Holly, which eliminates Matt Hardy. So they're too cool, and the Hollies have the four one two advantage with Christian and Jeff Hardy being the uh, the two guys left. And it's weird. I've noticed the theme throughout these uh, various matches. It's never one guy gets eliminated off the other team, and then so it's four and three. Then the other guy gets eliminated, and now it's three on three. It always has to be one of the teams dealing with a significant like mana disadvantage. It seems like on this card, like they always follow a similar beat. Yeah, they do seem to like to leave uh, one team with serious um, difficult odds to overcome, don't they? For some some reason on this one. Yeah, definitely. It just seems weird because like you can get it like once or twice. But, like you did it when you do. We have four variety matches, and you do it for every one of them. It kind of becomes like a bit same, and it kind of kind of brings like the quality of like the show down because like, well, I just I've seen this exact same thing three times. The only difference in this one is like he said, it gets a bit more time, and the guys involved are much better workers. I think. Yeah, it's pretty amazing that um, three of these guys are still going today as well. I mean, Edge just recently made a comeback, and Matt and Jeff are still. Uh, wrestling i mean it's 21 years later um it's also a shame that the likes of brian christopher and crash holly are no longer with us yeah yeah it's very sad when you like you you forget and then you somehow somehow remind of it and just kind of brings it down there's a a cool looking uh double power bomb from two girl on jeff he gets worked over eventually matches it not a swanton but a 450 on a Scottish Jihotty and eliminates him. Uh, he and Christian work pretty well here, but then they go for a version of poetry and motion and Arcoholic comes off the top and catches Jeff in midair with a drop kick. And that takes out Jeff after he's hit with a leg drop from Grandmaster Sexy. And uh, Grandmaster Sexy gets up and celebrates, but Christian sneaks up from behind, hits the reverse DDT and eliminates him. And then that leaves Christian to be double teamed for a wee while by the Holly Cousins and then uh, the Holly Ascension comes back in because occasionally they'll like fight with each other because like as soon as they lost the tag titles they're immediately on the outside fighting with each other. You have uh, Hardcore on the outside the uh, the Unprayers it's known now but it'll be called the Kill Switch on Christ that eliminates him. It's uh, a very short but decent back and forth between Hardcore and Christian. Christian goes up on Hardcore on his shoulders goes to roll through with a victory roll Hardcore counters it stacks up Christian in, and in 14 minutes 27, Hardcore Holly is the still survivor. Yeah, I was quite surprised to see uh, Hardcore Holly as the sole survivor. You'd, you'd think it would be Edge or maybe Jeff winning. I mean, even back here in the early days, you could certainly see Jeff had something about him. that He um, had star potential there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But yeah, again, I mean, it's bizarrely the longest elimination match, but it didn't feel like the longest one because the action was so well put together. Yeah, because it seems like it's commenting with some of these eliminated, but then they have to have like one or two other eliminations like in quick succession. Like, like I said, get everybody out of here. And I know the, the Hollies like, were recently tied champs and Tukula just recently debuted. Like, re- well, re-debuted in their current like form. Like, given how over the Hardys and Christian were after the ladder match and how much they've been talking about the ladder match even in the weeks following it, yeah, like you said, you'd expect the Hardys and Christian to win because also they had Terry out here with them and she didn't really pay much of a factor in this match. And also we had JR and King Peter Bickram because JR, according to King, is not a good friend. So you expect the, the new guys that you try to build Edge and Christian and the Hardys to get the win, but yeah, you have Hardcore Holiday, the human embodiment of charisma, standing tall at the end of this. <laughs> what are you trying to say? But I suppose, I mean, for Christian to to beat two guys well over £400 would have been oh, asking sure. a bit much. Yeah, Christian, Christian is many things. He's no super heavyweight, though. No, exactly. What, what's I, funny is... Sorry. I was going to say, I'd imagine when we, I was talking about um, the Hardys and Edge still going, I'd imagine Christian would probably still be going if it wasn't for his concussion issues. I mean, when you see him, he still looks decent shape, and I, I don't think he's much older than 40. So if he hadn't had his concussion issues, um, I wouldn't have been surprised if... Uh, Christian was, would still be going. Yeah, I mean, technically Christian had a match, uh, has been a comeback this year when he had that unsanctioned match, even though he didn't really get much offence and he still technically had a match recently. Uh, may I say, in regards to Teddy, the only noteworthy thing about her is when she comes out with the Hardys, uh, Jeff was, uh, King was, oh, there they are, and uh, I assume you mean they, they being Matt and Jeff. Oh, yeah, they're there too. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think she lasted very long with the Hardys, really, did she? She will. I think No Way Out is when uh, this partnership uh, dissolves. So it goes from No Mercy 99 to, two, to No Way Out 2000. A bit longer so, than I remember then, to be fair. Yeah, five months, I think, in total. Longer than, uh, longer than their partnership with Gangrel or Michael Hazer. Probably longer than most of the put together. I mean, she's basically there because she's easy on the eye. She doesn't really add a lot to the team or, or do a great deal from what I can remember. Mm-hmm. So, move on backstage. We get an update on... Uh, we get an update on... Obviously, it's all about how they're doing all these tests and that. And uh, uh, James basically says, there will be a trouble test tonight, just not with Austin. And that gets a very loud boo. And you see how quickly they want to like, put a stop to the booze and then stop the crowd from turning because the booze start and then always in the year, oh, you didn't know. The crowd suddenly cheers up and starts singing along with Road Dog, like, quickly, get the Road Dog out here before they turn on the show. <laughs> yeah. That wasn't bad booking in that, in that sense. But even in 1999, the, the crowd went stupid. They knew, they knew what was going on and that they'd been hoodwinked about the main event. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they... So what happened here, I mentioned the Hollies won the tag titles. Al Snow won, Al Snow and the Mankind won the tag titles uh, two weeks ago in SmackDown, only to then immediately lose them on the following Raw to uh, the New Age Outlaws. 
again, thanks to the shenanigans involving DX. Uh, obviously, the Rock and Sock connection seemingly no more because uh, Mankind's book is the now all everybody can talk about. And Al Snow found a copy of the book in the trash and was signed to the Rock. So basically, as far as Mankind knows, the Rock threw Mankind's book that he gave to him in the trash. And Mankind just ripped on the Rock. One of the I think a promo, one of McFoy's best promos that no one really talks about, the way he just shit, he cuts down the rock like nobody really was doing at that time, called him a selfish son of a bitch. He called him Dwayne, and he basically ends it by telling him, grow up, which was like shocking to see someone talk to the rock like that in 99. Yeah, it, it led to some good stuff, but they were you know, fortunate it didn't turn rock. Heel, to be honest. I know it turned out it wasn't him in the end, but it was quite a shady thing to do when Mankind's meant to be a sort of friend and tag team partner. So they were quite mm-hmm. quite fortunate in that respect. They did this kind of breakup between The Rock and Silk, and I think it was around the time, like, leading into 2000, where apparently Mick Foley was pitching an idea to turn heel and start a feud with that would help put over The Rock because he didn't feel like he had much like time left in his career because obviously the injuries and like the stuff with the cell in 98, that's why he's been doing so much tag team stuff lately to kind of you know, ease the burden on himself. Like, so he wanted to just, like, feud which would involve him bringing back Cactus Jack as a heel character to help The Rock and for whatever reason that kind of fell through. Uh, so he's doing with Al Snow here and Oh, I see. It goes 13 minutes 59. This match was fucking boring. I'm glad. I'm glad you agree. Cause yeah, I struggled to concentrate on this match. Um, yeah, it, I yeah, those have had some half decent matches here and there, but basically the bulk of the work is carried by Billy Gunn. I mean, Road Dog. He's he's got his like. Little gimmicks, but he really isn't a very good wrestler, is he? Ah, uh, it's just it's like this is a semi-main event, and the crowd of this chant along with Rudolph stick, and then they chant Foley because mankind like he can't not love Foley, and then the crowd suddenly just seemingly just die. So, like I think they're still annoyed about what happened with Austin, and like given some of the other crap they've had to see tonight, they were just so quiet. And then, despite being heels, it's the case of Road Dog gets worked over by Mankind Snow to lead up to then tagging in Billy Gunn because apparently the outlaw is not only one style of match and they, they don't they can't work any other style. Like, given the fact that they're the heels, like they should be the ones working over Mick Foley, uh, and then Mick Foley because obviously he's not taking as many bumps because he's he's injured. To then tag in them now fresher Al Snow who then can do the hot tag and all that whereas it's now it seems like the two faces Mankind and Al Snow are just picking on the heel road dog like Mankind even uses a chair on the outside behind the rest back like I'm just watching it's like this is all arse backwards it is isn't it as, as you say um, that sort of trope of Billy Gunn getting the hot tag seems to be the only way he can work a tag match bizarrely mm-hmm Eventually, Billy does get tied down, and then Alf knows the one being worked over when the outside. Uh, Mankind comes back in, he gets a famous there from Billy Gunn, but 
if he's dealing with Al Snow, so it takes him longer to get to the cover. And Kane builds up to eventually getting Stocko, gets that on Billy Gunn, and then Rudolph comes to break up, he gets the mandible claw, just regularly at uh, Rudolph, and then there's a double low blow by uh, the Outlaws. Uh, there's a decent like, false finish when uh, Al Snow, who now has head again, uh, uses head to, uh, like, to hit Billy Gunn with, but that leads to a false finish. Uh, and uh, assisted pile driver on Mankind, which looked brutal, and I don't think it's kind of spot McFall should be taken at this stage uh, to help the Outlaws retain, again, I said, in nearly 14 minutes, and it was just too long. Especially it was. How, especially given how long the show had been going, and basically, this, this just really dragged down, because like, the crowd are happy to heat these Outlaws like, for their entrance, but I don't think they want to see an Outlaws match go nearly 15 minutes. No, if they kept if they kept this five six minutes, uh, it probably would have been serviceable enough. And and yeah, as you say, um, with his um, concussions, mankind just doesn't really need to be taken spike pile drivers. Luckily, we don't we don't tend to see those in WWE anymore. But yeah, Christ, this was a very boring match. And uh, what's weird here is. Like, we go quite quickly into the main event, but we don't get, like, a hype-up package to kind of excite the crowd. And Because, like, the, the opening video package of the uh, the review was all about the triple threat. And, like, we got, we got the commentators who were talking about who the, tri- the third man could be. Because also during the tag match, all they could talk about was, oh, I think the guy uh, who drove the car was blonde. Uh, I haven't seen Billy Gunn all day. And they were basically implying that Billy Gunn was the guy behind the wheel uh, of the car. And then they show a replay of what happened to Austin. They talk a bit more, and then the rocks music hits, and we go straight into the triple threat. And I think it's, I think the only reason they didn't show a recap package is also they couldn't show footage of Austin and lead up to this. Yeah, no, they going to be involved. Yeah, that, that pretty much made it sort of mute and obsolete. Really, Beans Austin was no longer in the match. Um, I don't know if the driver Bean. Blonde was foreshadowing to who the driver would end up being, or that was just a lucky sort of coincidence there, because <laughs> I bet they didn't have a clue. It was going to be, uh, just close your ears. If you don't want spoilers, just close your ears now. Um, yeah, our boy Rikishi, who did it for the rock. <laughs> but I'm, I must have remembered, I do remember, even as a 19-year-old, Watching this in 1999, thinking, who who could this third person be? Who could it be? And even then, in them days, I was like, for fuck's sake, a bloody big show. <laughs> but naive as I was, I told myself, well, at least he won't win the title, because obviously The Rock's going to be winning now. <laughs> Silly me. <laughs> well, like, even if they did do like, a hype package, for, like, again, as I said, It'd really be a lie if they said it was all about the Triple Threat because the, the story leading up to this has all been about Vince versus Triple H for the most part. And then all the references to uh, to 97 with the fact that Vince is in a, involved in a main event title match at a Survivor Series. And then they said because obviously Vince is not there, he's not going to be the ref. And they said, oh, Earl Herbner's now officially in this match. Uh, that that shades in 97. Like, as I said, to reach, even two years later, the Montreal Screwjob's just been jammed right down your throat. <laughs> it carries on for a fair few years, doesn't it? 
But I mean, whenever they could, they'd, they'd sort of revisit the Montreal screw job. It's very ironic because during the same time, Bret Hart's finally winning the WCW title in, uh, in WCW, and shortly after this, he'll, he'll suffer the injury that would lead to the end of his yeah. career. And so we have The Rock come out, and instantly multiple shots of like all these different rock signs. Like, this is where we're coming up to like in 2000, the peak year for The Rock, I think, as a top guy. And I think people are realizing, like, the crowd's basically like, well, Austin's not here. Hopefully, they, now they're like they're fully behind the Rock to win because I think it's a case of we don't mind if it's Rock or Austin. We just don't want Triple H to win because obviously Triple H is the most hairy guy in the company at the time. After all, he's almost born to play. I think, and that's a label. So Rock comes out, Triple H comes out, and uh, I love the way Harry Finkel does. Harry Finkel does this. He goes, and their opponent, and there's almost like questionable to him because like, even Harry goes to me here like he doesn't know who's about to come and then they're the well it's the big show. and like the, what I love is a couple of things one the crew kind of pops like uh, yeah I'll, we'll take that yeah the big show because he was out earlier and he looks pretty cool and uh, it cuts to the rock face and the rock has a look at this be like this guy the rock <laughs> like really and, and Triple H looks so angry <laughs> yeah <laughs> It's sort of it's sort of made matters worse for himself all that, doesn't he? He's got rid of the Aston equation, but now he's got a five hundred pound seven foot monster to deal with instead. But it just it just doesn't look main event, does he, Big Joe? I know they did that hot angle with the him eliminating the whole team earlier. If he didn't do that, he might not have had such a favourable reaction, perhaps. But you know, he's wearing his like cycling shorts and a, a t-shirt to hide his ever-expanding gut. He just does not look like WWE. Apart from his, obviously, his immense size, he just doesn't look like WWE title material at all. I mean, he looks like he, he, he came straight from the gym and forgot to change out of his workout clothes. That's what he looks like. But to be fair to him, this was probably better than what he wore before because he used to come out just in just these, these weird looking trunks and pretty much nothing else like he had no shirt or anything like that because she was better off when he was wearing the same English yeah because definitely. him in his usual little pants it's just, it's just not a good look for him uh, so he comes out and he pretty much dominates the majority of the early road because like Rock and Triple H despite obviously hating each other realise we need to team up otherwise like this guy is going to just run through the both of us as a bit of a brawl uh, Rock looks like he's going to get an early win with the people's elbow, but Triple H pulls them out. Uh, all the guys brawl up the ramp. Rock does it, takes, gets a running start and takes the Big Show out with a clothesline before he and Triple H start brawling around the set. Big Show gets back up. Rock randomly hits him with a fire extinguisher because it's the closest thing he could find. <laughs> yeah. And then they brawl down and then they try to take the Big Show out just temporarily. I hit a double suplex through the Spanish announce table, and not they don't go, randomly they don't go back in the ring to try and quickly end the match before Bicho gets back up. They decide before they get back in the ring, let's take a wee trip through the crowd randomly, and they go around from one side ring to the other, and then they get back in the ring. Yeah, it's, uh, it feels like there's a 
even though it's a triple threat match, there's still a lot of bells and whistles in uh, in here, isn't it? <laughs> Seemingly, perhaps to hide Big Show's shortcomings, I don't know, but yeah, there's a lot of uh, a lot of um, sort of brawling on the outside and use of weapons. I think this was kind of the style at the time, and also Austin was much more of a brawler at this time, given his like injuries and that. So I think maybe they had all this brawling written into the, the match as they already planned out because Austin was going to be in it, and they thought, "Oh, we can still do it without Austin." So they just they just didn't want to change up much of the match. Uh, Earl Hebner gets taken out, which leads to Shane McMahon coming out in a ref shirt to count the pin after the rocks at a uh, rock bottom bit. The boy is a yeah. kick out. Now, see, you, you can just have a referee shirt on and be a, le- a legitimate <laughs> referee. Poor Bailey got such a hard time, but <laughs> look, I mean, they were doing it back in 1999. Well, I think it helps if you're, you have a referee shirt and you also happen to be the boss's son. True, you have a true. <laughs> and you're the best in the world, as declared in Saudi <laughs> Arabia. Yeah, I mean... Just imagine watching Shane back then. Yeah, no inkling. He'd be the best in the world. I mean, just staggering. I, I, his career went from leaps and bounds. Uh, Big Joe eventually stars in there. He's back up. Triple uh, H, it's a pedigree Shane. DX come out. And that leads to Austin chants from the crowd. But instead... We, we cut down to the ramp and Vince McMahon is horror walking his way down to the ring. Swings the bell at Triple H, he ducks, and then Triple H comes around and still gets hit with the belt. And while uh, Road Dog and X-Pac are rolling the rock on the outside, Big Show takes out Billy Gunn, hits a chokeslam on Triple H, and in 16 minutes, 13 seconds, the Big Show, after Vince McMahon counts the pin, which counts because obviously he was the original, originally assigned official to the match, so I was like, Big Show is your new WWF champion, and the crowd cheer. Not really because they they like the fact that Big Show's champion. They like the fact that Triple H is no longer champion. Yeah, I mean this this was a a very short title reign for Big Show. It it didn't work at all. But I don't I don't want to spoil the next pay per view. But I don't think he was helped by a, a lackluster opponent for. Um, um, Armageddon. I mean, I will. I am going to spoil it now because it needs to be mentioned. But uh, I mean, Big Show. This is the big boss man. That, I mean, that's okay as a, a mid card match, but it's not a it's not a WWE title match, is it? Yeah, definitely not. Uh, the Rock afterwards looks quite annoyed just to see like that motherfucker because uh, I think they could have easily done a one on one match with the Rock and Triple H because I think the fans were ready for the Rock to be the guy. Around this time, Triple H walks up the ramp with a DX yelling, "That's mine! That's my belt!" <laughs> and Triple H and Austin, fucking hell, some of my words. Big Show is in the ring crying, and Big Jr. building up like, "Oh, what an emotional week this has been!" He buried his father on Thursday. He wins the title tonight, and uh, yeah, the fans are like, "Hey, all right," but like they were just they just didn't want Triple H to win. I think it was kind of that matter of time before Big Show won the title. It's like, he was such a big deal post his WCW run. Comes in at uh, February this year and like immediately goes to a thing with Austin. And despite apparently Vince saying in interviews, if I had Paul White 
he'd be an attraction. He wouldn't wrestle every week. Three weeks after he debuted, he loses to Austin on Raw. And like he was on the poster for King of the Ring. I remember doing a, a show a few years ago where we were basically rebooking King of the Ring 99. I think all of us agreed on that show. Big Show should have won King of the Ring, given how much hype he had when he came in. And like he'd, an event, how he eventually would win the title within 99. Because uh, obviously Billy Gunn did fuck all with his King of the Ring win. Yeah, as you say, they completely bolstered up the posh of um, Paul White, Big Show. Despite Vince McMahon's bluster on I know how to build, book a big man, then why have him? Yeah, why have him lose to? I know Austin's your biggest star, but why have him lose within two, for three or four weeks of your debut? It's just, just ridiculous booking. And again, this is the Attitude Era. What's a five hundred pound, seven foot man doing crying? In the ring, you might, you might, they might as well have just brought out the shovels there and then for him to be quite honest. Yeah, uh, so big show because he's big celebration in the ring, and uh, the uh, crowd kind of quieting down. They're still cheering, but they're kind of quiet to, as the show, just as the show's going off air. So again, they're kind of slowly realizing, oh yeah, big show's the champion. He's yeah. he, he was yeah. diving like, off and on Thursday. It's like. It's like there's good news and bad news. The good news is Triple H is no longer champion. Yeah, but the bad news is the Big Show's now champion. <laughs> I mean, I think Big Show still had a lot of hope. There was still a lot of faith in the Big Show from the company, especially they could still make something of them. And this is probably that one of the last efforts they had. Is like Big Show would be one of these guys to throw his career every day and then suddenly get a push. I don't know when this is the first instance of that. I mean, the thing is, Vince signed him on a 10-year guaranteed contract, which I think, apart from Mark Henry, was on a similar sort of deal. was pretty much unprecedented because <laughs> he had so much faith in Paul White, but he just sort of became sort of increasingly lazy and increasingly heavier because uh, of his sort of lifestyle. So, yeah, <laughs> They wanted to pay it off, but he just wasn't ready. It just didn't work. Yeah. So I think it's fair to say we've had mixed feelings about the show, given how we've talked about it. Overall, Carl, what would be your rating if it had to be between a thumbs up, thumbs in the middle, or thumbs down? And other than obviously the Austin moment, is there anything on this show that you would tell people to go back and watch? Um, the only thing I'd perhaps sort of tell people is it's Kurt Angle's debut match um, that's probably the only other thing worth going on about um, I mean it's got to be a thumbs down this show, I mean you, you're sort of hoodwinked on the main event and the, the matches are short and mostly boring, I think the only the only match I found reasonably enjoyable is the, the Hardy Boys Edge and Christian versus um the Hollies and Too Cool. That was the best match and by a long way. Everything else was pretty pretty pants really. What what would rating would you give it, Scott? I mean, I think as short as they were they were kinda of, like a good elimination match. As short as they were. I mean the uh, the Hardys the Hardys and Edge and Grisha be too cool and the Hollies, I think, is one I'd, I'd tell people to go back and watch. Partly for that it is the best worked elimination match and partly because uh, you know the uh, 
it's just seeing how far these guys will come even a few months later like too cool and like the Hardys and that especially uh, and even Edge and Christian I think if I was going to tell people we'll go back and watch it even though they've, they've probably already seen the Austin thing they probably already knew about Angle but I don't think many people would have actually watched the Angle match I'd say go back and watch the Angle match and the main event they try their best so I'm, I'd say middling but I'm dangling towards the down but I think there's enough to keep it around the middle for me Fair enough. Yeah, but obviously not as strong as we but I think in the months to come we'll have a much stronger pay-per-view ratings from the WWF. It's still very much a transitional period because uh, Austin's gone and they need to try and regroup and try and see how the company goes without the guy that they've relied on for the last like year and a half at this stage. Yeah, it, it's... Um, yeah. As you say, sort of a rebuilding process and banking on the rock, basically, now. Um, still more interesting than uh, most of the stuff we're getting these days, though. Mm-hmm. I think there's, like, there's also two halves, I think, of the attitude there. There's the half that involves like the Vince Russo, I know, where the outlaws are always on top in the Italian division, and Austin's the main eventer. I think that half of the attitude era is basically ending around the same, and this is where we transition into the next stage, where we have like the revitalization of the tight division with Edge and Christian, the Hardys, the Dudleys, and the Rock is on top. And everything. This is where the second half of the attitude era begins, and I think personally, I prefer the second half. And so I'm looking forward to what's coming next. And I think we need to get through a show like Sorry, it's not as as underwhelming as it may be. We had to get through this to get to all the good stuff that's coming. Yeah, definitely. Things do start picking up. Uh, I remember WrestleMania being a bit pants, but uh, yeah, there were some uh, good pay-per-views. And we have the sort of Radicals debuting as well, don't we, early in the year, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and all that stuff is still to come in our virtual SmackDown journey. And we hope you'll join us going forward. And it's coming to us, I'll be... Uh, going outside of Rogue Opinions, as I promised previously, and be getting some guests from outside of Rogue Opinions to join me, along with some people I know from elsewhere, uh, to get some, try and get some different perspectives on SmackDown, and hopefully you'll go back in our archives and check out the previous episodes done with Carl, I've done them with Jimmy, Reese, Nathan, and all that, and check out everything else that's going on in Rogue Opinions, and follow us on Twitter at Rogue underscore pennies, you can get me at Scotland 1986. Me, Jimmy, and Nathan are all doing some grappling updates for the last few weeks and some quizzes that you can check out. Uh, Carl, you and Reese have been very busy with the sport and stuff right now. Yes, uh, we've been uh, doing a couple of the F1 podcasts covering the, the first two races. Um, we're continuing with the, the football as the season comes to a dramatic close. Um, the Premiership might be decided, but there's still relegation and um, top four to finalise. So make sure you tune in to them and uh, find out our analysis on what's going down in the Premier League. Um, we have a website set up with um, articles by myself and Anthony that are well worth checking out. So if you want to check out Rogue Opinions um, 20, uh, com. Please do. All the links are on our Twitter as well to make it easier for you. Mm-hmm. Very good. 
Well, we're entering a new era of SmackDown. The Big Show is our champion, and I, for one, can't wait. We'll see you <laughs> soon. Bye. Well.